I just want you to ponder with me for a minute. I want you to remember with me for a minute. I want you to think with me for a minute about how merciful our Lord Jesus Christ actually is. How compassionate and how kind, how abounding in love and faithfulness He is. Consider Him. Consider Christ who persevered and who remained steadfast and committed to the will of His Father even in the face of great treachery and betrayal from within and open hostility and antagonism from without. And you ask, why? Why did our wonderful and precious Lord continue to press on? Why did our Lord labor in preaching and in teaching and in healing people and in eventually dying on a cross to save all of you who would call out to Him for salvation? Why? Why pour out grace and why pour out mercy on all of you who truly trust in His name, who believe in Him? Why would he continue even as Judas, one of his own inner circle, betrays him to the religious leaders who, then, who hated him and wanted him dead? Why continue? Why continue as these religious leaders use every and any underhanded, deceptive, and wicked means at their disposal to eliminate him? Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus, the one who blazed the trail for anyone who would repent of their sin and turn to him in faith. Jesus blazed that trail for all of us that we who believe might be with him forever, enjoying him, delighting in him who is our greatest treasure. Why would he do all of this? Mercy and compassion. Your Lord is more merciful than you could ever imagine. Your Lord is more compassionate than you could ever imagine. The problem is that many times those who claim to speak for him, those who claim to be his people, are not. And in our text this morning, we arrive at the moment. We arrive at a turning point, an event when opposition to Jesus took on a more ominous tone, a more active and pointed dedication to seeing Him dead. As the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones who spoke for, the ones who represented the Lord to the people, those proud, arrogant, self-loving men who'd crafted a rather long list of traditions, a long list of external and extra-biblical rules by which to structure their own lives, started to cast those rules on the lives of everybody else. You see, it never stops at us structuring and creating rules for our own lives, does it? We always tend to want to cast those traditions and those opinions and those preferences and those things that we hold dear onto everybody else, even if they are not found in Scripture. If you really want to be spiritual, we might say, If you would be acceptable to the Lord, you must follow the same traditions and the same rules and hold to the same ideas that I hold to. And the Pharisees, this is what they this is how they lived. This was their forte. If you do not do what we the Pharisees do, then you are nothing more than some filthy sinner. 
one from whom we must divide. And the Pharisees, antagonizing Jesus all throughout his ministry, they believed their own hype. They walked around with a level of arrogant pride, unmatched and unparalleled by even the proudest characters exhibited in Scripture. These Pharisees were more proud than Naaman the Syrian. They were more proud of even Nebuchadnezzar, that proud king of Babylon. And they walked around to all of the people in Israel, if you don't do what we do, if you don't think how we think, if you don't live how we live, right down to the minutest and smallest detail, even though Scripture itself doesn't make such demands on the people, the Pharisees would cast you out. And even more, in the case of Jesus, they would agitate for murder. And to be honest, if you think about it, if you look into your own heart, if I look into my own heart, aren't we all capable? Aren't we all ever in danger of becoming the Pharisees ourselves? We can be just as proud, just as arrogant, just as self-centered as anyone, as even the worst most proud people we see in Scripture. You and I are ever, always in danger of this reality. Each one of us sees the world in a certain way. Each one of us prefers certain ways or modes of living, certain ways of eating, certain ways of responding to the situations and the circumstances of the world that we, f that we live in today. And I know, as I, as I listen to pastors speak to each other, pastors speaking to other pastors, pastors speaking about other gospel-preaching, God-centered, Christ-loving churches, as I look out and I see and hear Christians dividing from and maligning and slandering other God-fearing, Christ-loving Christians over the issues that are happening in the world, I think to myself... We so clearly present to the world the same pharisaical spirit that Jesus contended with in his own day. If you don't do what I do, if you don't think how I think, if you don't act how I act, if you don't believe what I believe, then you are less spiritual, you are less faithful, you are a coward. Even though in many cases, these are simply your own personal traditions, your own tribal loyalties, your own man-made commandments. Are you able to distinguish between your own man-made traditions and what Scripture actually teaches? The Pharisees thought they could, but as we'll see in our text this morning, they could not. We have an ever-increasing tribalism and pride in our own group of like-minded thinkers in our day, don't we? We love to find the people that agree with us and sit in those circles and just talk with them and bounce all the same ideas and hear what we like to hear and keep from our ears the things that we don't like to hear. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees would go out into the world, cast a few stones, judge a few people, and then retreat back to their Pharisee group where everybody talked about how amazing they all were and how arrogant or how, uh, how sinful and unfaithful and terrible everybody else was. And listen, you and I, we are all in danger. We are all tempted to stand in the temple like the Pharisee did. You remember? As he looked up to heaven and said, God, I thank you that I am not like the sinner over there. I fast twice a week. I give X amount in my tithes. 
Might I say, to probably the great offense of all of you, we do the same thing with everything we're seeing in the world right now. I stand up. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that other people because I won't get a vaccination. Or I will get a vaccination. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else because I won't wear a mask. Or I will wear a mask. Lord, I thank you that I am not like those other people. You know, those churches that all followed the government regulations and closed down and followed what the government was suggesting that we do. I thank you that I'm not a part of a church like that. One of those state, that's what I'm hearing now, the state-run churches. Or, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a part of one of those churches that stayed open, those rebellious churches, and everybody falls into their own little circle and retreats into their own little group and hears everybody say the same thing, and they all, whatever side you're on, all begin to act like Pharisees. This is the Pharisaical spirit. No mercy, no compassion, no goodwill, no love. Mercy and compassion and love are the high calling, the great calling, acceptable in every circumstance. Mercy and compassion is always right. And Jesus will answer this pharisaical tendency in our text. Do not hold to your own rules do not love your own tribe so much that you, do, you forget to be merciful and compassionate to the other human beings that are around you. Human beings. And again, this text this morning marks a turning point in the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. You see, up to this point, the Pharisees had simply asked pointed questions of Christ. And then that elevated into slandering Christ. You remember when Jesus called Matthew and then he went to Matthew's house and a bunch of tax collectors and sinners gathered in Matthew's house and Jesus joined them for this little soiree. And the Pharisees went to the... the he, they sidled up to Christ's disciples and they asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, tax collectors and sinners were not a part of the accepted group by the Pharisees. So they judged them showed no compassion to them. And what was Jesus' answer? Nine, verse, chapter 9, verse 13. He told the Pharisees this, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says that exact phrase, Hosea 6, 6. He'll say it again in our text this morning. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And these Pharisees, they moved from pointed questions to slander, right? In uh, chapter 9, verse 34, they, they started slandering the name of Jesus by saying, you know this man, he casts out demons by the prince of demons, right? And they start going around and telling the people that. And in chapter 11, verse 19, it would seem that they'd also gone around telling the people that Jesus was both a drunkard and a glutton. It's one thing to ask pointed questions in the quest for greater knowledge, but all, another altogether to begin slandering. And that's what the Pharisees started doing, slandering Christ. Slander is a very serious sin, a sin that people must, the people of God must take great pains to avoid it at all costs. 
Because the slandering words of the Pharisees revealed their absolute hypocrisy. These were men who walked around passing themselves off as holy, as righteous, as spokesmen for the Lord, as teachers of Israel, who consistently and proudly and openly ignored the law of God to keep from slandering. Leviticus 19 made it clear, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Psalm 101, whoever slanders his neighbor, I will destroy. Slander on its own, just by itself, is a most wicked and terrible and heinous sin, and the Pharisees were guilty of it. All Pharisees tend to be guilty of slander. Are you a Pharisee? How do you speak of those who are not a part of your particular tribe? But if you really think about it, you know they love the Lord. You know they follow Christ. You know that Christ owns them as one of his children. And again, according to uh, chapter 12, verse 14 in our text this morning... The animosity moves from questions to slander, and now we see the animosity of the religious leaders toward Jesus being ratcheted up. You see it. The heat of their hostility rises to a rage-filled boil as they move from slandering the activity of Christ to actively searching for ways to destroy Christ, meaning to kill him, to assassinate him, to put him to death. And what is it that so filled the Pharisees with such a murderous fury? Well, let's explore the question, the answer to that question. But the first thing we must do is set the scene of the engagement, which we see in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. So that's pretty simple, right? Jesus and his disciples are journeying about, and on this particular Sabbath, they passed through some grain fields, and because they were hungry, they plucked some of the grains and they ate them. Now, normally, this wouldn't be a problem because the Old Testament provided for this exact scenario. If you're here and you own a field or you own a store or something like that, you might wonder to yourself, well, don't these fields belong to somebody? Is it really okay that the disciples are walking around in somebody else's field and plucking their grain and eating it? Wouldn't that be stealing? That's most certainly the case for us today. I know that if somebody owns a field and people would enter that field to pluck and eat the food that is growing there for themselves without paying for it, we call that stealing, right? That's our culture. We do that. And I can still remember the anger and the reddening of an old boss's cheeks in my teenage years when I worked on a corn farm, laboring and sweating under the scorching August sun for a whopping five bucks an hour. And the number of times that I would arrive to work early in the morning only to see a line of corn cobs strewn from the field to the road because obviously someone had parked their car there in the middle of the night, ran into the field, grabbed as many cobs as they could, and ran out from the field, and the cobs falling out of their arm all over the place. And you'd see these lines from field to car. 
And I remember when the theft came to the owner's attention, I remember the inflamed indignation and the gritted teeth and the hand clenching at the butt of his shotgun and making, his making a number of not safe for work comments about the perpetrators of this dastardly deed and that inspired a little bit of terror in myself, my young teenage self. Now, while that might be the case for today, in the days of Christ, among the people of Israel, what the disciples did here was not stealing. It was actually a perfectly legal and acceptable deed. In fact, the Lord enshrined it. Because our Lord is compassionate, He enshrined this into the law itself, as we read in Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, 24 and to 25 reads like this. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in Israel, the Lord had established laws and rules that cared for the people and at the very same time protected the owner's rights to their own fields. So the Lord permitted people to eat the grapes in the field, anything that was necessary for that moment, but the Lord forbade that same person from bringing in a bushel into that field to throw a bunch of grapes in there to take them home. The same is true for the grain. If a person in Israel was hungry, they could go into the field, pluck as many as needed for that moment, but they were forbidden from bringing a sickle into the field in order to reap a whole bunch of that grain and bring it home and store it up. So provision for the people, protection for the owner. So, all that to say, the problem is not the disciples actually taking and eating the heads of grain on this day. No, the problem for the Pharisees was the day upon which they chose to eat this grain. Look at it. What's the day? The Sabbath. As you read through the Gospels, the authors are always clear, they always make it clear when something occurs on the Sabbath. And when you see that phrase, the Sabbath, think to yourself, dun, dun, dun. Because you know something is about to happen. It adds weight to the narrative. Look how clear Matthew makes it. They went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. See, when you read through the Gospels, do you ever hear that the Gospel writer make it so clear that Jesus performed such and such miracle on a Thursday? Or that he healed so and so on a Monday? Or that the disciples went fishing on a Tuesday? No, you just don't, you don't hear that. But when something happens on a Sabbath, then it's a big deal. This is the day referred to in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, where we read this. <clears throat> Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So as you can see, the Lord had indeed commanded a day of rest for the nation of Israel. 
And on that day, Exodus tells us that nobody was to do any work. And the Jews took this very, very, very seriously. But there is a problem. The question that they would wrangle with for the next centuries is this. What constitutes work? What is work? This question occupied the minds of the rabbis and the Pharisees and the scribes all the way up until the time of Jesus. And over time, a rather complicated set of rules and definitions were defined, which became tradition in Israel. And these traditions were set alongside the actual Word of God itself, and in many ways became even more important than the Word of God. Even to this day, we still have difficulties figuring out what's good and what's not on the Sabbath. You can look out at the denominations throughout Protestantism or throughout uh, the Christian church or even offshoots that are not really Christian. So, for example, there are some who are very, very clear. You can't do anything on the Sabbath. Don't go get gas. Don't go shopping. Don't do this. Don't do that. And yet, all of the people still do it. They just don't do it where people can see them. You've got entire denominations called the Seventh-day Adventists, for example. Their whole thing is the Sabbath is Saturday. And they judge and kick everyone else out that doesn't follow their, their rule. So you see, the Sabbath is this, this concept of the Sabbath is very important. Dr. John MacArthur, Chancellor of Master Seminary and Pastor of Grace Church, actually, in his commentary on Matthew, gives two examples from history to press home the level of seriousness with which the Jews understood the Sabbath. The first example comes from the days of the Maccabees. If you recall, we've preached about him before, Judas Maccabeus, an ancient Jewish freedom fighter who liberated for a time Jerusalem from under the grip of Greek oppression. But there was a time when many Israelites, when defending themselves against the, uh, the Greek army led by Antiochus Epiphanes, refused to fight, refused to defend themselves because it was the Sabbath. When the Greek soldiers arrived and set out to attacking the Jews, the book of Maccabees says this, the Jews answered them not, neither cast they a stone at them, nor stopped the places where they lay hid, but said, let us die in our innocency. Heaven and earth shall testify for us that you have put us to death wrongfully. And the Greeks, not observing the same scruples and the same beliefs as the Jews, still went in and slaughtered and killed a thousand men, women, and children who refused to fight back because it was the Sabbath. That's pretty serious, right? And on a separate occasion, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us how the Romans captured Jerusalem, how the Romans under General Pompey captured the city of Jerusalem, the walled city of Jerusalem. It's because the the inhabitants of Jerusalem refused to lift up arms in either offense or in defense on the Sabbath. You see, the Roman troops had a system whereby they would build up these humongous mounds and they would set their siege weapons on these mounds in order to batter and blast and assail the city. But building these mounds took a lot of time and there were usually a lot of casualties because the peoples in the city that they were seeking to overtake would shoot their arrows and shoot whatever else at the Romans as they built up these mounds. But the Jews in Jerusalem 
General Pompey understood they will not do anything on the Sabbath. And so he only built up the siege mounds on the Sabbath and met no resistance. And Josephus, the the Jewish historian, wrote, Had it not been for that practice from the days of our forefathers to rest on the seventh day, the bank could never have been perfected because the Jews would have opposed them. For though our law gave us leave to defend ourselves against those that begin to fight with us and to assault us, it does not permit us to meddle with our enemies while they do something else. So according to their tradition, they couldn't meddle with the Romans as the Romans built up these siege mounds. And it's because of these siege mounds that they lost the city. So do you see the level of commitment with which the Jews held to the Sabbath? But the problem is that they spent so many years arguing and wrangling and debating over what it meant to work on the Sabbath that they forgot and lost the real meaning and intention of the Sabbath. The Lord... But these religious leaders, as they had done to pretty much every single command of the Lord, just go back, remember when we were working through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was continually clearing up the law, from uh, bringing it out from under all of the traditions of the Pharisees. And here it's no different. The Pharisees added so many man-made rules and so many traditions and so many minute details and observances to this day that the Sabbath actually became a burden to the people. The Sabbath oftentimes brought people less rest than actually going to work. The Sabbath in the hands of the rabbis and the Pharisees turned into an oppressive day, not a restful one, a frustrating day, not a peaceful one, and it became another reason for these religious peoples to pat themselves on the back, the back, as they looked out at everyone who couldn't measure up to their standards And they said to themselves, look how great we are. And look at all these people who just can't do it. And they grew their own reputations among the people. And on this day, as the disciples were walking through this grain field, they plucked heads of grain and ate. Now, they weren't actually breaking any laws in Scripture. What they were breaking was the uh, man-made traditions of the Pharisees. Traditions, like we said, were as authoritative to them as the very words of God themselves itself. And so here's how they would have saw this. In plucking the heads of grain, rubbing those grains in your hand to access the kernel, and then dropping the chaff or blowing the chaff away so that you could eat the wheat, the Pharisees accused them or would accuse them of working on the Sabbath in that the disciples both threshed and winnowed the wheat. Two things that the Pharisees forbade on the Sabbath. And note that Jesus himself makes no comment, right? Jesus gave them no rebuke. Jesus never told them to stop. But the Pharisees, whose eyes are always watching, whose eyes are ever ready to pounce, the external holiness police with eyes peeled and focused like lasers on any violation of their traditions, they jumped at the chance. They salivated at the chance to condemn the disciples. It's an all-too-common human trait, one that humans struggled with. I've still struggled with from that day to this. As we see in verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, that's Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now I want you to notice, the Pharisees, they saw the disciples doing this, right? They saw the disciples picking and eating the grain, meaning that they must have had to follow the disciples 
Jesus and the disciples around. Now you'd say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, according to the same traditions, according to the same man-made rules that these Pharisees claim to have taken so seriously, the distance that one might walk or travel on the Sabbath was actually quite limited. Meaning that if they're following Jesus around, they're breaking their own rules. And yet, here they are, close enough to see, close enough to point the finger at someone else's violation of their rules. See, the Pharisees were the types that loved to keep their eyes focused on what everyone else was doing, what others were saying, how others fell short of their expectations, while at the same time minimizing or justifying their own failures to live up to the same burdensome traditions. And this is something that we all struggle with too. An example would be that humans have a tendency to attribute their own failures to circumstances in their life, but they have a tendency to attribute the failures of others to that person's person or nature. So here's an example. How many of us have ever walked through a store and heard somebody's child screaming with blood-curdling ferocity and intensity? And you don't have your child with you or you're well past the time when, when you were uh, in this boat. If it's somebody else's child who's screaming, we have a natural tendency to think to ourselves, they must be a terrible parent. They need to discipline their kid more. They need to do something about that loudmouth child. Now, is that the same reasoning you give if it's you who's out at the store and it's your child? that is ferociously and blood-curdlingly screaming. No. We attribute our, circumstance, our situation to our circumstance. Well, you know, he's tired. We were up late last night. Oh, I haven't given him food yet. Right? This is human nature. Assume the worst of others. Assume the best of ourselves. This is how humans operate. This is how the Pharisees operated. We maximize the faults of others and minimize our own. Pharisees were masters of this. And when challenged, the Pharisees would create some loophole through which to slither in order to keep up their own appearances. Or, or they would simply insult or dismiss the person who dared to correct them. In John 9, after Jesus healed the man born blind, they questioned him. And the man said, you guys, nothing like this has ever happened. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And what was the Pharisees' response? Was it, wait, maybe this guy is a, uh, maybe this Jesus is something amazing? No, their response was this in John 9 34 You were born in utter sin. And you would teach us, and they cast him out. That's the classic tactic of the hypocrite insult, degrade, dismiss anyone who legitimately critiques. And as Jesus had done and would continue to do on so many occasions, he clearly and openly rebuked the Pharisees for their errors. And I'm so thankful that he did. He revealed the compassion and the mercy that ought to characterize those who follow him. In answering their accusation uh, to the disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, Jesus gave three examples to show their mistaken and erroneous traditions. And the first example is an example from Israel's history as we will see in verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 to 5. 
or three to four. Jesus said, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and, at, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus begins the correction by saying, Have you not read? You Pharisees who claim to know the law so well, you Pharisees who think it's your duty to spy out others and call them out on every minute detail of their lives, don't you know your own law? Don't you remember that the same law that you claim to uphold by your ceremonial and human traditions, that all of these things that you have added to it permitted certain ceremonial regulations to be bypassed or set aside when compassion and mercy dictated it? See, the bread of the presence here in this text was a consecrated bread. It was 12 loaves that would be situated in the holy place in the temple or the tabernacle. And they symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel, and it was a constant reminder of the Lord's constant support for the nation. And the offering of these loaves was an, an, an acknowledgement of Israel's dependence upon and gratefulness to the Lord. And these 12 consecrated loaves of bread were set on the table in the holy place and changed once a week. Every Sabbath, the priests would bake new bread, put them on the, on the table, and then they would eat the consecrated bread themselves. The bread uh, was only to be eaten by Aaron and his sons, the priests. And yet, and yet, when David and his men were fleeing from King Saul, the priest Ahimelech came out seeing that they were hungry. And he gave David the bread because there was no other bread around. And so Jesus said, David did what was not lawful on this day, and yet neither David nor Ahimelech were disciplined. The Lord allowed the violation of this ceremonial regulation to meet most mercifully and compassionately David and his men's dire need for food. But unlike the disciples on this day who'd simply broken a mere tradition of the rabbis, David had actually broken a, a, a law. An actual ordained provision clearly set out in the law of God. But David, eating on the ground of absolute necessity, was, not, was, was justified in eating that bread. See, the ritual laws that are set down by the Lord are tremendously important. They would not have existed had they not been. But there were occasions, like this one referenced by Christ, when higher priorities, such as mercy... And the continuation of life superseded such ritual demands. The lives of David and the lives of David's men took precedence and priority over the ceremonial demands of the law. And that is the same here on the Sabbath on this day. The disciples plucking and eating grain to appease their hunger was a necessity that overrides the tradition of the Pharisees. And as David and his men were held guiltless for their act, so the disciples were guilt, held guiltless for theirs also. And the second example is drawn from the law itself. As you read in verses 5 to 6, from the ministry of the priests. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? And I tell you something greater than the Sabbath is here. 
Again, Jesus asks these self-styled religious leaders if they'd even ever read their own law. Are you, teachers of Israel, ignorant of what Scripture teaches? The law is clear, right? You work six days and you rest on the seventh. But what about the priests? The priests who serve the Lord in the tabernacle and in the temple, they continue their ministry all week long. They are ministering on the Sabbath. They're performing deeds and duties on the Sabbath that under different circumstances would profane the Sabbath. They offered sacrifices, burnt offerings on the Sabbath. They baked the bread for the, the bread of the presence on the Sabbath. And in, for, and in John chapter 7, we see that the Pharisees would circumcise people on the Sabbath because they deemed that more important than observing the ceremonial Sabbath. And all of these sacrifices, baking showbread, circumcision, they are works performed on the Sabbath by the priests as a ministry of mercy and compassion for those who bring their offerings to the temple. And yet these priests are held guiltless. A modern day application would be nobody would look at the preacher who is preaching the word and leading the congregation in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. None of them would say, you're guilty of violating the Sabbath. Because, Jesus continued, something greater than the temple is here. You can imagine the mouths of the Pharisees just gaping open as Jesus makes this statement because in the Jewish mind, there is only one thing greater than the temple. And that is the God to and for whom the temple was built. And here Jesus is declaring that he is the Lord, that he is God. This is his temple and his person and his work and his mission is superior to the Sabbath. So the idea here is if the temple ministry is superior to the Sabbath regulations, I know it's very, very Jewish in what we're talking about here. If the temple ministry is superior to the Sabbath regulations and Christ is greater than the temple, then how much more might he minister, work, and serve the Father with his disciples on the Sabbath? And the third example is drawn from the prophets. As Jesus makes abundantly clear, acts of mercy and compassion are indeed always permitted on the Sabbath. As we read in verse 7, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And Jesus made this statement, Jesus made this statement clear, and then he proceeded to perform an act of compassion and mercy for the man with the withered hand in verses 9 to 13. But again, you see that again, Jesus begins with, if you had known what this means, he begins again with a critique of the Pharisees' knowledge and understanding of Scripture. Three times he does this. Because to really know God's Word is to do God's Word. And these Pharisees thought they truly understood the heart of the law. But they didn't, because the heart of the law is, according to Jesus, to love God above all things and to love your neighbor as yourself. And had they truly understood God's call through the prophet, of, uh, through the prophet Hosea, these Pharisees would not have judged and would not have condemned all those around him so easily and so flippantly because those others didn't measure up to their external man-made rules. This is a call from Jesus for them to get their priorities and their values in order. And it's a call to us as well. As we in our own day act and walk around very much the same as the Pharisees in Christ's day. 
There are many who walk around and have no problem being irate and angry and condemning of those who don't do the things that they do and think the way that they think and hold to some minute opinions and then judge others for those because they don't measure up to your minute opinions, but at the same time, they don't think twice about the violation of the command of our Lord to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's Pharisee 101. The Lord, all throughout the New Testament, calls on us, calls on everyone who claims to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to be kind and charitable and compassionate and fair and merciful and filled with goodwill towards one another. And these things are always right. They are always acceptable. And if the Pharisees then... And we today understood these words, neither they nor we would so easily and readily hurl condemnations at those whom Christ considers guiltless. Now, your convictions are indeed important, your sacrifices are important, but mercy is more important. Do not burden and load down others with your rules and your traditions, but instead you point them in the direction of Christ that they may take upon themselves the yoke of Christ. Not your yoke, not my yoke, the yoke of Christ. That they may learn from Christ because Christ is gentle and lowly in heart. It's in Christ that we find all the rest our souls are searching for. Mercy and compassion are located in Christ. The Pharisees had lost the ability to see the human beings in front of them, to feel compassion for the people in front of them, to love those people, to show mercy to them because they were so loaded down and filled up with their traditions and man-made rules. They got so angry and so tribal that love wasn't even on the menu anymore. It wasn't even on their radar anymore. It wasn't even a consideration that I ought to be merciful and compassionate to my fellows. Oh, what a terrible place to get to. And if we aren't careful in our own time and in our own place as divisions and hostilities and tribalisms and party spirits and aligning yourself with only those who agree and echo your opinions and sentiments, you too might become one who forgets this clarion call of your Lord, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Fellow Christian, we are all ever in danger of repeating the errors of the Pharisees. You and I are always in this in danger of doing so. You are and I are always in jeopardy of creating a set of rules and elevating traditions and opinions that we hold to the same level as scripture. We are all tempted to choose sacrifice over mercy. Because sacrifice is easier. It's more appealing to our flesh. Sacrifice consists of outward acts that we can perform and think that we're doing and meeting all of the requirements of God. Sacrifice is a way that we can elevate ourselves and condemn others. While mercy, 
Mercy is a disposition of the heart, a sacrificial disposition of the heart. Mercy is a characteristic that is developed in you and I by the Holy Spirit. Mercy is a disposition that can only be practiced insofar as our own self-pride is continually mortified and put to death. Mercy can be practiced only insofar as we deny ourselves and we take up our cross and we follow Christ. So the question then is, are you like the Pharisee? You might be like the Pharisee throughout your whole life or you might be tempted to just at different times and seasons and and in reference to certain things to become like a Pharisee. Have you been holding others to your traditions and your rules and your standards and then condemning and holding others guilty because they don't measure up to your rules? No one in particular is being called out here because this is a human problem. It's an everyone problem. It's an all of us problem. We are all tempted to practice such a wicked deed. But as we've seen in our text this morning, our Lord Jesus calls us to himself. He calls us to find rest in him and then commends each of us, every single individual person here this morning. He commends to us the words of Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. How are you in your mercy? How are you in your compassion? How are you in imitating the gentleness and the lowliness of your precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? If you are proud and judgmental, haughty and arrogant, then you might have to consider this fact, that you are not in a truly saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because such a disposition is incompatible with a life dedicated and devoted to our Lord Jesus Christ. Be honest with yourself. Petition the Lord. Call out to Him. Repent of your sin. And recognize sacrifice is not always the way to go, but mercy is. Father, we thank you, we praise you for the warning words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you for the example that you've laid out for us in Scripture of the Pharisees. Lord, sometimes it's easy for us to look at the Pharisees and think, oh, what a bunch of fools, but in reality the Pharisees are simply a mirror into the temptations that, will, that affect our own hearts. The Pharisees are a mirror in which that, that reflect our own identities in so many ways back to ourselves. And you've given us and recorded for us these events so that we might take stock of where we are in our own hearts. And Lord, you call us to imitate you. You call us to be like you. You call us to follow you. And you reveal yourself in your word to be merciful and compassionate and gracious and truthful. So Lord, I pray that you would keep us on the road of all those things, merciful, compassionate, gracious, and truthful. And I know that none of us, I can't, nobody can do it in their own strength and power. 
The only way we can do it is by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so we plead with and we petition with you, Heavenly Father, please change us into compassionate and merciful people. And we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.